right, we've got two stories from Curiosity.com, plus the answer to a compelling listener question to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn why you get sick of your favorite things and how you can make them exciting again, what bowling balls and neutron stars have in common, and we'll answer the legendary question, is water wet? Let's satisfy some curiosity. All right, Ashley, what's the last thing you got sick of? I don't get sick of very many things. In case you haven't noticed, I eat the exact same thing for lunch every single day. I'm so weirdly the same way. If I had to eat lean ground turkey meat or chicken and veggies every day, that would be it. Yeah. I don't know what it is. You don't have to think about it. But not everybody's like us. So today we've got a simple trick to help you keep your favorite experiences feeling fresh and new. Nice. And this is really about fighting off something called hedonic adaptation, also called the hedonic treadmill. It has the treadmill nickname because it's talking about how you get back to a stable level of happiness even after something really good or really bad happens in your life. It's like if you're on a treadmill and you trip or something, you eventually go back to that regular speed. And to give you an idea of how big of a thing this is, one study showed that people who won the lottery weren't even very much happier than they were in the first place a full year after they won the lottery. Even a million bucks gets old. So why is this? One paper blames hedonic adaptation on two main causes. First, we all love something new, but you can only discover so many things about that thing, right? Got a new car? Okay, well, there's only so many features and settings you can find and mess with before they aren't new anymore. Same for me goes for video games. The second cause is that even if you get a lasting benefit, like winning the lottery, your newfound wealth just becomes the new normal. It's not really a benefit anymore if it's just life, you know? So let's talk about how to get over it. A new study says all you need to do is liven up the things you're used to by experiencing them in new ways. Like in this study, researchers had participants eat popcorn with chopsticks, and they enjoyed the popcorn more. Another study had people watch their favorite movies with their hands cupped around their eyes like goggles. I love that. And the way I make things new, again, video games. I do this all the time by playing as a new character or trying a new mode or difficulty when the main experience gets stale. Maybe do single player instead of multiplayer. Yeah, and actually when I train for marathons, because I've done a bunch of them and that gets boring, is I'll just use a new training plan. I'm the same way with yoga also. So many different things. Anyway, try switching things up. You can email us to let us know how you come up with awesome ideas at podcastatcuriosity.com. All right, Cody, if you drop a feather and a bowling ball, which one lands first? The bowling ball. What about if you drop a feather and a bowling ball in a vacuum? And they fall and land at the same time. That's right. I paid attention in high school physics. Yeah, that's one of those really fun physics experiments that you never really get to see. Although there is a wonderful YouTube video that you can see on our story about this on curiosity.com today, where physicist Brian Cox went to a giant vacuum chamber and he did the experiment with a feather and a bowling ball. And it's so cool to see. So why does a feather fall more slowly than a bowling ball if you're just doing it in the room right now? Sure. That's due to air resistance. Certain shapes and materials produce more drag than others, and that slows them down. But if you take away all the air, then everything falls at the same rate. That's the force of gravity. But scientists have constantly wondered, does this hold all the time? Like, what if there's an object that's really, really massive and really, really dense? Does it have like a special amount of gravity that makes it move differently than a normal object. And one example of one of these really, really massive objects is a neutron star. A neutron star is one of the densest objects in the universe. It forms when a star way bigger than our sun collapses into an object the size of a city. That's pretty small. Yeah, so it's super dense because it's still all of that mass into that tiny, tiny little space. To see if a neutron star falls differently than other objects in the universe, 
they had to find a neutron star. And they actually found the perfect one because they found one in a triple star system made up of a neutron star in a less than two day orbit with a white dwarf star. And then both of them were in this wide 327 day orbit with another white dwarf star. So you've got your super dense neutron star and your normal white dwarf stars. And you can compare how they orbit because orbiting is really just a controlled fall. So it's basically like dropping a bowling ball in space. Oh, all right. So they were able to measure the speed of these stars super, super accurately. And they found out that, yeah, they're all kind of falling at the same rate. So a feather, a bowling ball, and a neutron star all fall at the exact same speed in a vacuum. Wow. Yeah. So there's a good riddle for your next party. Definitely. What do a feather, a bowling ball, and a neutron star have in common? Gravity, man. If you're at a party and someone gets the right answer to that, your friends are nerds. <laughs> you have the greatest <laughs> friends. You have the coolest nerd friends like we are. <laughs> Sorry, but you're in great company. <laughs> I would love to go to that party. <laughs> Speaking of questions to ask at parties, we got this email from Christy in Pennsylvania, and she wrote, quote, Love your podcast. Please resolve this ongoing controversy in my family. Is water itself actually wet? Unquote. So I told Ashley this happened <laughs> and you just sent me the definition, like the Webster's definition <laughs> I did. of water. And you're like, there, solved. <laughs> I did it. Well, I didn't do that. I did a quick Google search and the results spoke to me. Did they? They really did. They took me down a rabbit hole. I did not expect to go down ever. <laughs> <laughs> because there's just so much here. I found this question on debate.org, is water wet? And it has a practically even split with 49% saying yes and 51% saying no. Wow. Yeah. Now, I don't know if I'll have a super satisfying answer that will resolve the ongoing controversy in your family, Christy, but I will do my best. According to UCSB Science Line, it depends on how you define the term wet. There's a few different ways to do this. If we define wet as the condition of a liquid sticking to a solid surface, like water wetting our skin, then no, water is not wet by itself because it takes a liquid and a solid to define the term wet. Now, if we define wet as a sensation that we get when a liquid comes into contact with us, then the answer is a conditional relative yes. Water is wet to us. And if we define wet as made of liquid or moisture, then yes, water is definitely wet because it's made of liquid. So all liquids are wet because they are all made of liquids. You see where I'm going with that. So there's three completely different answers depending on how you define the word wet. And the definition I actually found was literally... <laughs> the literal definition is covered or saturated with water or another liquid. Not really the most helpful definition. So I did some digging and I found a 2011 study out of the University of Southern California titled... Water's surface not all wet. Some water molecules split the difference between gas and a liquid. That's the name of the paper. The summary reads, quote, At any one time, one quarter of water molecules in the uppermost layer have one hydrogen atom in water and the other vibrating freely above. Such molecules straddle gas and liquid phases, according to a new study that bears on atmospheric chemistry and raises the question of how exactly to define the air-water boundary, unquote. So on a molecular level, if you have a surface of water, it is both wet and not wet at the same time, depending on the state of the atoms. And along the lines of this microscopic definition, chemist Richard Seikali told the Nautilus that water is wet because of strong tetrahedral hydrogen bonding. You'll get a similar answer, by the way, if you ask your Amazon Echo device if water is wet. 
trust us, we tried. So long story short, this is really just one of those unanswerable questions, like how many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man? Yeah, I wish we had a more solid answer again, but depending on your definition, you can kind of make it work for you. Join us again tomorrow for the Curiosity Daily and learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Ashley Hamer. And I'm Cody Goff. Stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.